0: We're in a collection called A Creative Minority, and we're talking about how do we be the church in this cultural moment. And so a few weeks ago, we started by looking at the book of Daniel. And just to recap, Israel is in exile. They've been conquered by the Babylonians and plucked from their homes. And so the book of Daniel follows a handful of Jews that were pulled from their homeland and thrust into Babylon, this new nation, and they're trying to find their way while living there. And we see that the tension in the book of Daniel is actually the same tension that we face today as believers in our modern day world. See, Babylon was trying to uproot their Jewish culture and assimilate them into becoming Babylonians. But we see that Daniel and his friends, they resisted two temptations that we often come against today. The first temptation was the temptation to assimilate to the dominant culture. They continued being faithful to Yahweh. They continued being faithful to their Jewish heritage, even against the mounting pressure that was coming against them. And the second temptation was this temptation to separate themselves from the culture. They were still very much involved in Babylon. They dressed Babylonian. They learned the language. They even had secular jobs. They were still very much contributing and committed to the prospering of the city. And they were successful and influential. And so when we read Daniel, we ask the question, how do we live in a culture that has a competing vision for what it means to be human? A competing vision for what human flourishing and freedom look like, a competing vision for life and satisfaction. How do we remain faithful to God in a city like San Francisco while still having influence, while still being successful? We see that Daniel and his friends found a way, and it was to become a creative minority. Now, we define a creative minority as a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Remember, last Sunday, Lisa talked about what it means to be in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. And so today, we're going to continue in this collection as we talk about nationalism and how our ultimate allegiance must be to Jesus, how we must commit our ways to practicing the way of Jesus. So before we jump into that, why don't we pray? God, we thank you for who you are. We pray that you would come and illuminate this text to us. Would you convict our hearts, and would you inspire us to align ourselves wholeheartedly to you, first and foremost, before anything else? We love you, God. We pray that you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start from verse 1, so follow along with us. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he sets up this 90 foot tall statue. It's plated in gold. It's decked out. And he orders all of the city's most influential people to come and worship it. Now, there are many different opinions about what this was a statue of. The Bible doesn't actually really say or make clear what it was a statue of. But we get an idea of what the statue represents. You see, a statue is a symbol of two things that people tell you to never bring up at the dinner table, politics and religion. See, this statue represents politics and religion together combined, right? The ultimate recipe for an uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner. The statue represents the national power of babylon it 's an embodiment of Babylon as an empire of its gods of the power of King nebuchadnezzar himself and it was a powerful thing and The people were commanded to bow to it and worship it as soon as they heard the music playing and Imagine a church service, and they have their own rendition of waymaker, and you have to bow to this statue, this idol. That represents Babylon, its religion, and its politics. Now, I think when we hear a story like this, this, there's this temptation to think it's like a children's story. You know, this was a long time ago. Ancient people, they worshipped anything and everything. It's like, I can make a statue of fig, and they would worship it. Like, we would never erect statues like that today and sing songs to them. We would never gather around a symbol of our nation and pledge allegiance to it. That's ridiculous. We don't do that. But maybe you forget that we have a statue three times as tall in New York that embodies our national ideology of liberty and freedom. Maybe you forget that before every sporting event, we sing the national anthem. Maybe you forgot that every morning at school when the flag was being raised, we would pledge allegiance to it. Now, I'm not saying it's good or bad that we do that. I'm just saying we're not as different from these ancient empires as we think. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he says, when you see the statue that represents Babylon's power, Babylon's ideology, its way of life, its culture, and when you hear the music playing, fall to your knees and pledge allegiance to it. Think about that. This isn't just an ancient empire from a long time ago. This is us. This is America here and now. You know, why did they have the people do this? At the core, they were getting people to pledge allegiance to Babylon's way of life, Babylon's definition of right and wrong, Babylon's definition of success and failure, Babylon's idea of happiness and satisfaction. Ultimately, they were getting people to align themselves to pledge allegiance to Babylon's reality. They wanted people to worship Babylon as God. Now, my point is not that we shouldn't sing the national anthem or we shouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag. My point is that we should always be aware of what we're pledging allegiance to. We have to remember that our ultimate allegiance is not to this country, to its ideology, to its culture, to its way of life. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and to the way of the kingdom of God. You know, I find that most of us, we don't really consider what we're pledging ourselves to. I mean, how many of you, when you're updating your iPhone, you actually thoroughly read through what you're agreeing to, right? None of us do that. We just scroll through and we click accept, right? I remember when Krista and I were buying a home for the first time, um, right before we closed the home, they sat us together in at this dining table and we went through all of these papers and we had to sign an initial so many times, like hundreds of times. And honestly, I had no idea half the time what we were signing to. I just trusted Our agent, because he's a good friend of ours. But I find that many of us, we pledge allegiance to things and we have no idea what we're really pledging allegiance to, what we're aligning ourselves with. We don't stop to think, am I pledging my allegiance to this thing and does it clash with my allegiance to Jesus? You know, I find it ironic that the same Christians who teach Bible studies about this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow to Babylon's national anthem, Condemn people like Colin Kaepernick who refused to stand during theirs. I mean, is he being anti-American? No, he's stopping to think, what am I really pledging my allegiance to? Do I really want to pledge my allegiance to a nation that enslaved my people and continue to perpetuate injustice against them? Do I really want to pledge my allegiance to a national identity that says liberty and freedom for all while my people are still oppressed? Church, our allegiance is not to America or its ideology or its culture or its democracy. Our allegiance is not to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Our allegiance is not to Black Lives Matter. Our allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost. And so we see we continue on in verse eight It says at this time. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so anyone refusing to worship the statue was to be thrown into the blazing furnace. And this is why religion and politics together are so dangerous. What we see here is the heart. Of Babylon's civic religion now what's a civic religion you ask it's like the intermingling of religion and politics I mean think about the idea of God and country where its national leaders are made sacred and heroic and a civic religion always has three convictions and we'll use Babylon as our example here to to really understand what a civic religion is now the first conviction is that the gods have chosen Babylon They believe that the gods have given favor to Babylon. That's why we're prospering. That's why we're defeating our enemies. That's why we're on top. We are God's chosen nation. We are God's favorite nation. The second conviction is that Babylon and its king are agents of God's rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. And so wherever Babylon rules, our gods rule there as well. It's not just King Nebuchadnezzar's laws or decrees or commands. It's an extension of our God's rule and reign. And so God has given us power to exert power and authority over the rest of the world. And the third conviction is that Babylon must manifest God's blessing if you want peace if you want prosperity security flourishing the same way that we have experienced it you have to submit to babylon and its ways you want to know what it's like to be blessed by the gods look at our nation and follow our ways and so these three convictions embody what a civic religion means and you could swap out babylon with almost any nation You could swap it out with the Roman Empire. You could swap it out with North Korea. You could even swap it out with America. Come on, let's think about America through this lens of civic religion. Now, civic religion, once again, has three convictions. And so through this lens, God has chosen America. Manifest destiny. We are God's chosen nation, God's chosen people. We are the best nation in the world because we have God's favor. Conviction number two, America and its leaders are agents of God's rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. Our president wasn't just chosen by the people. Our president was chosen by God Almighty himself. And whatever the president says or decrees is an extension of God's will and rule. Wherever we go, God goes. And the third conviction, we represent God's blessing. America is the epitome of God's blessing, prosperity, and freedom, and if you submit to our way of life, our democratic process, our vision of the pursuit of happiness, then you can experience God's blessing like we have. I mean, come on, we have a track record of going into other countries and enforcing our way of life upon them. Why? Because at the heart of it is the civic religion that says we believe it's the best way to experience God's blessing and flourishing. And this is why Christian nationalism is so dangerous. Our nation becomes the central protagonist in God's purposes for the world. The American way becomes synonymous with God's way. It becomes our duty to enforce our way in the world and defend our way when it's being challenged. And this is so dangerous. Wars were started because of this ideology. The storming of our nation's capital happened because of this. See, when Christian nationalism fails to recognize is that it actually has more in common with major empires like Rome and Babylon than it does with the Christian church. This is not the way of Jesus. Listen, church, America is not a Christian nation, and we never were. And partly because I believe there is no such thing. But even if America was a Christian nation, it wouldn't have been founded on the backs of slaves. We're an empire. We have a civic religion and we cannot bow to it. Now, I would wager that a majority of our church leans more liberal or progressive And I would bet that as I'm describing America's civic religion, you're already painting a particular picture of the type of people who fall into this category and it's not you, right? You're typical Trump supporting conservative Republican Christian, but hold on. I'm not done yet. You're not exempt from this. You may be thinking, this isn't me. I don't subscribe to these things, but we need to talk about our nation's civic idol. We have a civic idol within our civic religion, and this idol is liberty and freedom. Michael Gorman has a lot to say about this. He writes, American civil religion values human liberty. And rights as a divine gift, and considers it perhaps on par with strength as one of the highest national values. The protection and furtherance of freedom is therefore a divine mandate and mission. The operative notion of both political, corporate, and personal individual freedom is that of God given inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. An idea derived both from the enlightenment and from one of the most important sacred texts of this civil religion the declaration of independence now if you have no idea what he's saying it's all summed up in this understanding that america's true religion is our worship of liberty and freedom our song our flag our statue our god is actually liberty and freedom But this idolatry isn't just manifested in anti-maskers. It's also manifested even in a progressive city like ours. Forget nationalism for a second. I want you to think secularism. Think materialism. Think sexual freedom. Think the pursuit of individual happiness at all costs. This is the American way of life, and all of us have taken part of it, and it's what we worship. We think we would never worship these ancient gods. We would never bow down to golden statues. Maybe we wouldn't worship Bacchus, the god of wine, but we drink way too much. Maybe we wouldn't worship Molech by throwing our babies into the fire, but we neglect our children to chase our dreams, our ambitions, and our careers. Even the idea of total freedom becomes this idol that we worship. No one can tell me what to do with my life. I'm just going to live the way that I want to live it. I'm going to live out my own truth, my way. And we're not going to submit to anyone, not even to God. All of this is America's religion. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, all of us are prone to worshiping this civic idol freedom and liberty now shadrach meshach and abednego they refused to bow to the statue they refused to bow to babylon they refused to pledge allegiance to this thing that they knew violated their allegiance to god to yahweh and so we see in verse 13 furious with rage Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace." then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. You have set up. What was their response? Their response? Non-participation. Not storming the Capitol. Not canceling Lil Nas X. Not boycotting Harry Potter. Simply non-participation. We're not going to take part in that. That's not us. We're following the ways of our God. Our allegiance is to Yahweh. And so we're not going to take part in that. Church, hear me. You do not need to mount a loud rebellion against culture. You don't need to be shouting at the world about how their ways are going against the ways of God. It's a quiet, often subtle non-participation that God calls us to. Instead of preaching at your coworkers about how getting drunk is a sin, it's quietly refusing that extra shot when you know you're at your limit. Instead of going on a Twitter rant about how raunchy that Grammys performance was, it's simply turning off your TV. I never understood Christians that were trying to cancel Game of Thrones. If it bothers you, just don't watch it. Non-participation. Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow. We will not pledge allegiance to your gods. Now, I always read this story and thought, man, it must take so much faith to say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. I mean, honestly, if someone was putting me in front of a blazing furnace and I could feel the heat of the fire, I would think that it takes a lot of faith to say, yo, if you throw me in there, God's going to deliver me. He's going to rescue me from the fire. But, but looking at this story again, I actually think that it takes even more faith to say what they said next. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods. Even if not, we will still not bow. Even if God doesn't rescue us, we will not serve your gods. Even if we burn in the fire, we will not submit to your ways. Listen, church, it takes so much more faith to say, even if you don't deliver us, God, we will still choose to trust in your goodness. See, faith doesn't always predict God's ways. It simply stands firm in God's word and obeys God's truth. Faith doesn't manipulate God's hand. Geoff Thomas, he writes, Faith's finest hour may be when it can oppose Nebuchadnezzar's three words, burning, fiery furnace, with three of its own, but if not, even if I don't get that job, I will trust in your provision. Even if I never meet the love of my life and live happily ever ever after, I will trust in your satisfaction. Even if I never feel like I'm fully stepping into my destiny, I will trust in your plans for me. See, not many of us know that kind of faith. We glamorize the type of faith that prays for healing against cancer. But we forget about the faith of the one at the funeral who says, I don't understand, but I still trust you. Even if not. Now going on to verse 19. We're getting to the end here. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing robes, trousers, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his, his, his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. But he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Notice that God didn't keep them out of the furnace. Notice that God didn't keep them out of the fire. Instead, he was in there with them. Listen, it's naive to think that we'll never experience persecution in this life. I mean, some American Christians are crying that we're facing persecution right now, that the government is trying to keep us from gathering, and oh my God, they're making us wear masks while we sing. It's horrible. This is persecution. No, that is not persecution. The blazing furnace, that's persecution. The people dying in countries all over the world for believing what they believe, being murdered, that's persecution. This is not persecution. But there may come a point in time where we have to make a choice and our choice to follow God may cost us something or may even cost us everything. It's naive to think following the way of Jesus will never rub against the culture of our world, that everything we do and believe will be accepted by the society we live in. It's in the world's acceptance of our ways cannot be the barometer of our faithfulness to God. God never promised to keep you out of the fire, but he did promise that you would find him in it with you. There is another in the fire. Now, the story concludes in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they must feel good, like God delivered us, and now everyone sees that our God is for real. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are probably going, yeah, come on, come on. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. They're like, yes, yes, come on, keep going. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and in their house houses be turned in, hold on chill chill king Nebuchadnezzar like he's going way too far but he says be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way then the king promoted Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the province of babylon now great story but what do we do with all of this what is the heart of this message what is the heart of this story In our polarizing world, there's this pressure that we often face to choose our allegiances, right? Republican or Democrat, conservative or progressive, in and out or Shake Shack. By the way, Team Shake Shack. We have to remember that our ultimate allegiance is to God. It's not to an organization here in this world that we really highly admire. It's not to a political party. It's not to anything else other than the kingdom of God. Jesus, King Jesus, Yahweh, the God that we follow. And so today I feel an invitation from Holy Spirit to ask ourselves these few questions. In what ways have we bowed to Babylon? In what ways have we bought into America's civic religion? In what ways have we worshipped our civic idol of freedom and liberty? Okay, maybe you're hearing this and Christian nationalism, okay, that's definitely not me. But maybe you might have this conviction that I have bought into the ways of our city, of pursuing success at all other costs, at denying the Sabbath so that I could get further in my career, at Sexual promiscuity and freedom without any limits or barriers. My unwillingness to submit to any other authority and making myself the Lord of my own life. In what ways have we bowed to Babylon? In what ways have we bought into America's civic religion? And in what ways have we bowed to freedom and liberty instead of bowing to the freedom that we find in God? Where must we practice non-participation as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? Church, hear me. The world isn't going to be drawn to a church that looks exactly like them. I believe that the world is longing for a church that shows them a better way. Not the American way, but the way of Jesus. I love at the end of this story that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted after this. In other words, they had influence over Babylon. They had influence over the nation where they were a creative minority. They had influence over a culture that clashed with their internal culture. Yet they were still promoted. Yet they still had a voice. Yet they were still able to influence the entire nation what would it look like if we could be a people completely committed and devoted to the way of Jesus who would say no to nationalism, who would say no to America's civic religion and say, your way Jesus is the way that we align ourselves to. I believe that God is doing that here in our city. I believe that God is giving us a vision for what it looks like to be a creative minority in a city like San Francisco. and I believe that's the way that we're going to win our city. Not tainting our, the way of God so that we can be accepted, not tainting the way of Jesus so that we could fit in, but staying firm, not bowing to our culture, but only bowing to King Jesus and living out the ways of the gospel. Why don't we pray? Right now, I just feel an invitation from the Spirit of God to ask, is there any area of your heart where you need to repent? Any place where you've bowed to Babylon, where you've bought into America's civic religion of freedom and liberty above the gospel? Right now, search your heart. And if you find any way offensive to the way of Jesus, I want you to begin repenting. And I want you to begin to say with your heart, God, I align myself with you. My ultimate allegiance is with you, with the way of Jesus, with the kingdom of God. And I want you to begin asking, Holy Spirit, is there any way that you're calling me to practice non-participation in a city like ours? Maybe it just means cutting back on drinking after hours. Maybe it just looks like not being so active on your dating app and being a little more careful about who you go out with. Maybe it looks like not watching that TV show or listening to that song. Whatever it looks like for you, what does it look like to practice non-participation in a city like San Francisco? God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you convict us and move us? so that we could be a creative minority, not committed to being accepted by the city, but committed to following the way of Jesus to bring renewal to the city. We love you, God. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.